This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and your jumpers. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day and welcome to Countrywide, broadcasting from Bundaberg today. My name's David Barnock-Clement. It's fantastic to have your company this half hour, wherever you happen to be. On the show today, interest in carbon credits has skyrocketed in recent years, as has the price you can charge for them. But a change in federal government policy has now flooded the market. The government buys about two-thirds of carbon credits that are available, so with that change, they've effectively added two-thirds of the overall market supply back into the market. And as the demand for halal-certified meat continues to grow, Aussie producers are scrambling to catch a wave of lucrative export deals. So in terms of Malaysia, the total industry here is expected to contribute about 8.1% to Malaysia's total GDP and generate about $18 billion in export revenue for Malaysia. But first, you are going to head to New South Wales, where the impact of recent flooding continues to reverberate throughout those communities. Hundreds of thousands of fish are now washing up dead on riverbanks and beaches along the coast. Low oxygen levels in the water are to blame and have caused mass fish kills in the Richmond, Clarence, Maclay and Evans rivers. Kim Honan joined Ozfish Unlimited CEO Craig Copeland at Shores Bay in Ballina, near the mouth of the Richmond River. So we've got juvenile fish and we've got, made, you know, we've got big fish. We've got, we've got all, different, all the major species. So we've got, um, you know, we've got sea mullet and brim and flathead and whiting and, and just then, then all the small fish. We've got toadfish and all sorts of things. And you can see them all still out there on the, on the waterline. And if you, go, if you look at all the way along the beach, you can just see that silver all the way along just this beach. And if you do the same thing on every beach... Um, you know, in the bottom of Ballina and all the way up the river and all the way up North Creek, it's the same. So how many do you estimate are dead? Oh, we're talking about hundreds of thousands. And that's just the Richmond River alone? That's just the Richmond River and we've just had reports from our chapter down in the Clarence. They've got, you know, major fish kill down there and we've also got reports from the Maclay. Um, and just this morning we've got some reports from the Evans River. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is widespread. Yeah. And so what's causing the fish kills? Uh, essentially, it's the low, no oxygen in the water, um, and it's sort of a, a bit natural in that after a flood, um, uh, wetlands uh, um, the stuff in the wetlands decompose and comes out and it chews up all the oxygen in the water. But unfortunately, we've got a floodplain that's made to drain very quickly. So back when we had all that, uh, just the sunny weather, a <laughs> little bit of sunny weather, you know, all, ha- all that happened was that the water came out over the uh, floodplain really quick, off the floodplain very quickly. And, uh, and then the fish just weren't ready for it, so bang, the way they went. And so have you started cleaning up the fish yet? Well, Who's responsible you can see for those, that? Bl- those uh, three blue bins up there, so that's a uh, council put those in, that was for fish waste only. They've already, they've already cleaned them out once. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess f- before people come down to the beach again, you know, we're going to, this is going to need another clean-up and, and continue on because these fish aren't just, you know, dying here. 
they're dying all the way upstream, so they'll just keep on floating down and end up down here all the time. Yeah. For how long do you expect this to continue? Uh, well, at the moment, we've just we've just did some water quality monitoring yesterday, and it's zero oxygen in the water. So until it improves, we're going to keep on getting you know dead fish. So. And how often are you testing the water? Uh, we're doing it every couple of days. Um, there's a couple of Rouse County Council have some data loggers, but a lot of them got. Uh, torn away or, or or destroyed in the in the flood, so um, which is a bit of a shame. But we, so we're out there um, doing what we can just to keep the monitoring going. And what sort of loss is this to the Richmond catchment? Because you've been involved in a, a lot of river restoration and fish habitat works over the years. Um, it just tells us that, we, that this work needs to be done. We we have to do more than we've been doing. That, that's as simple as that. We've we've been we think we've been doing good things, and, and I think we have, but we need to do a lot more. And because this this is a river that um, you know, people come to people come to Ballina to go fishing. Uh, they come to they come to Yamba to go fishing. They go to Southwest Rocks to go fishing. And and losing all these fish, you know, just means there's less fish in the future. So we've got to we've got to you know turn that around. We've got to realise, even though everyone's lost houses and other things, it's hard to put it in perspective, really. But later, when everyone's we'll fix those things, we'll, people will want to go fishing. They'll want to catch fish. There's businesses that depend on on, on fishing and you know, on tourism because people come here for that purpose, and we we need to fix that. And um, I know there's a lot of work done with uh, restoring the Richmond River and uh, a new uh, QX resistant oyster in yes. the river system. What's well, happened we, to we, it? Well, we're just we're, we can't find it at the moment um, because we had a whole bunch of it. They're still underwater, uh, but we're we're hopeful. Uh, we can go, we're going to go out. I think uh, John Larson, the president of the chapter, is going to go out there uh, today or tomorrow and just see if he can uh, find the, all those oysters that we that we had. We're quietly hopeful. Um, it will be it will be one uh, shining light success story in in all of this depressing muck that we're we're facing. Yeah. And is there any way that you could prevent these high number of fish kills? Uh, yes, so we, we, there's actually a report that we did back in 2004 after the 2001 uh, fish kills, and essentially some of the really you know major floodplains are, are dry, again draining. They're all ex-fish habitats, and they're draining too quickly. Um, releasing all this um, low dissolved oxygen water, and so we can, we just need to put them back m- more naturally, and that means coming to an agreement with the landholders and, and, and I guess paying them to to have fish habitat. Yeah, and you have started to do that with the landholders since Which, that period. Yes, though. we've been we've been working. There's fisheries and and other groups have been working with the government to to do that, but it's probably uh, not at the scale that it needs to happen to to stop it happening at this you know and stop having these dead fish on our shoreline. And um, we're seeing other things wash up, obviously. There's been all kinds of urban waste, debris, there's still a hay silage bale there, obviously dead animals as well. Yeah, so it's it, so the, the place smells terrible and it's just you know decomposing fish and all these other things. So, And again, even if you, you know, were wanting to you know, go fishing, you wouldn't want to touch the fish or catch them. So it's a, it's a bad thing for a, a while to come. Craig Copeland, who worked with New South Wales Fisheries prior to his current role as CEO of Ausfish Unlimited, a not-for-profit organisation working to restore and protect recreational fishing habitats. Carbon prices have dropped by more than 30% off the back of a new policy announced by the federal government. Landholders or businesses accruing carbon credits will now be able to apply to opt out of their fixed contracts with the government and enter the more lucrative open market. 
Co-CEO of carbon project services provider Climate Friendly, Josh Harris, says this means there could be a 60% increase in carbon credits on the open market. And in response, prices have fallen dramatically. What they've done is allow landholders and large aggregators and businesses to opt out of, of the contracts. And just to give you some perspective on what that means, the, the government buys about two-thirds of the carbon credits that are available in the carbon market in Australia. So with that change, they've effectively taken away two-thirds of, of the demand, or the other way to think of it is they've added two-thirds of the overall market supply back into back into the market. And that has had a very short-term in, impact on the carbon price. What have we seen the carbon price do? It's dropped approximately a third, and, and that, that happened pretty well within, within the 24 hours of, of the announcement, and, and it's still sitting at that range. So it went from about $47 down, down to $30. What the, the government announced was a consultation process on how that policy would actually be developed in detail and how it would be, would be rolled out. But just to give you a couple of um, examples of who has been impacted by this, any, any landholder who started up a carbon farming project within the last couple of years would not have had a fixed contract with, with the government. And so that you know, is about 400 landholders who have, have new projects. They were able to sell into the spot market or to the open market or into longer-term carbon offtakes. And because the price has now come down, they have lost under this policy. There's also landholders who had fixed carbon contracts with the government, but actually in good faith, they've delivered on those and they've finished them. And then and they've, they've completed that term and now, they're now able to sell into the open market. I guess it's less incentive for people who would look at getting into doing some carbon projects if that market does dip. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And that's just one of the unintended consequences here is that we need new carbon farming projects to help us on our path to net zero. Fundamentals, the economic fundamentals of those projects now change really very much overnight. It makes it harder to hit net zero, harder to you know decarbonise across the economy and, and less incentive for landholders. In your opinion, why has the government done this? What, what the government was trying to do was was saying, look, a carbon price at 50 was was um, quite a way away from the fixed contract average price of about $12. And they wanted an, to enable an orderly exit of landholders and businesses out of those lower price fixed contracts through this consultation process that the government should be looking at the overall first principle. First principles go back and look at the supply and demand dynamics and and see what volume of those fixed contracts could be released into the open market without having such a material impact on price. Jacqueline McCarver is part of Regen Farmers Mutual, a group of farmers who have banded together to broker carbon credits and other environmental goods or services themselves, cutting out the middleman. She says the government intervention has led to uncertainty in the market, but she feels they had little choice. They really had to react, which is unfortunate because the larger brokers have said that they'll, they'll walk away from their contracts. And that means that the government had to weigh up the price of litigation, of, of keeping them to their, to their contracts or having a, a managed um, retreat, which you know, essentially gives a, almost a billion-dollar windfall to some of these larger brokers, adds that uncertainty element to it. 
and um, you know, up until about a week ago, it wasn't even apparent that these these brokers would um, share that that profit with with farmers and and uh, land carers. So, it's um, you know it, that that has that loophole has been closed up. It seems at the moment, but you know th- this comes back to to two elements. One is is market design. Um, and the other is having a, a you know a proper Australia-wide emissions reduction policy. Do you think that this drop in prices? Do you think that will remain around the world? There has been um, a, a reduction, and some of those have bounced back. So in in Europe, they they went from about 95 euros and lost about 35 percent of its value, with a lot of uncertainty uh, with the war in Ukraine and and other. Um, other elements. So there has been um, the market across the world has been up and down. Obviously, here this uh, has is is going to make a dent. Some people uh, are saying that it will have a you know potentially a resting price of about twenty twenty four dollars, which is higher than its sixteen dollars that it was at for years and years until this recent rise. But again, it's just we need to have. A policy that um, has more market makes sure that there's more market participants besides beside the government. Region Farmers Mutual member and Moama farmer Jacqueline MacArthur speaking to Olivia Calver there. The Clean Energy Regulator stated that the large difference between fixed contract prices and secondary or opened market prices was unsustainable. And instead of a disorderly exit from fixed contracts, which could lead to disputes over failed deliveries, the new exit arrangement provides a measured and orderly transition from the fixed delivery contracts. It says consultation is due to begin with landholders and carbon service providers. From carbon to the wool market now, where Australian exporters are concerned an extended coronavirus shutdown in China will have flow-on effects for wool demand and prices here in Australia. The demand for Aussie wool in China is huge. The country actually increased its import quota for wool in 2022. But earlier this week, the southern business centre of Shenzhen, a city of 17.5 million people, was shut down due to spreading COVID infections. President of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors, Josh Lamb, says the industry is hoping the lockdown will be short and sharp. The implications for us at the moment are they're shutting, they're locking down provinces, which means wool can't move from one province to another. And, and there's three to four destinations in the processing of early stage processing of wool in China. So that wool needs to move between provinces to be processed and, and turned into a final product. And what that means for the wool industry is that our customers, if they can't move their product and they can't get paid, and that, that might have a negative effect on um, the wool market going forward if, if it's an extended extended lockdown. Can you explain that in a little more detail, how that wool sort of moves once it arrives in China in, in a greasy form and then the sort of different stages it goes through, but it doesn't all happen in the one place, does it? No, that's correct. I mean, there are some fully vertical integrated mills that, that, that process wool all the way through from the greasy form, which is how we export it from Australia, all the way through to a fabric. But the majority of it is done in, in four stages. So there'll be scouring uh, where the wool's washed in one mill, then it'll go to another mill where it'll be combed, then it'll go to another mill where it'll be made into a yarn, and then another mill where that yarn's then made into a fabric of some sort. So it does move around a fair bit. And um, if, if that comes to a halt, then, then that obviously can, um, can have an effect. And what's your information on the length of this shutdown, this current shutdown? Are you getting any information through from the mills or the the wool uh, industry over in China? 
Yeah, we, we, we've got a pretty good, pretty good relationship with the industry in China as far as on the ground, at a ground level with customers and, and associations. So we're just hearing that provinces are being locked, um, transport can't move between these provinces and it's there's no timeline on how long this will last. Um, we did hear this morning that they're still requiring people to, to isolate for 14 days if they've if they've been outside their province but they're actually looking at perhaps reducing that to seven which will obviously help and that's probably in line with what we've done you know in Australia over the last couple of years but um, no, no, no sort of no direction on how long this will last, but it's 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 only in the early stages, and it does seem to be ramping up fairly significantly. And what about the the wool supplies in China? If this was to go on for an extended period of time, do they have supplies in there just to keep them going? No, they don't really. In the merino part of 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 the business, stocks are very low in China and around the world, and we've had all the logistic issues over the last two years. Um, with sea freight and other things, which is which has stretched those supply lines as well. So, I don't think China would want this, from a wool point of view, to go on for an extended period. And we certainly don't want that at our end either. I mean, China's our our, our major customer of Australian wool, and we we need them to be in the market every week. And it's not the first time during this COVID pandemic that China's ports have been affected, and you know certain mm. provinces shut down. What happened last time? Um, well, we went through this about this time last year, actually, and it didn't it didn't actually have a huge negative effect on the market. It did push the market sideways for a couple of months where there was no sort of clear directional positivity. But um, essentially, we just had to ride it out and wait until um, wait until restrictions were eased and and they got back to normal. I mean, China's pursuing a COVID zero policy, and as such, this is how they'll go about it. At this point, if it's just a, a brief shutdown, if it lasts a week. We won't really see any impact here in Australia, but if it goes on, say, a month or two, that's when you'll really start to notice yeah. something. Yeah, look, I think a couple of weeks, probably not, um, you won't see too much of an effect. If, if we're talking months, then, yeah, we, we could have a problem for sure. And when you say a problem, what, did China's just not buying wool? Well, they, they'll, they'll be less inclined to buy wool if they can't move product on at their end, although what they're buying today from Australia won't be delivered for several months. So we do have a bit of a window there where it's probably not that critical, but an extended an extended shutdown would definitely flow through to the market here in a negative sense. But really it'd have to be, you know, it'd have to be months long for that to for that to have an effect. Josh Lamb, president of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors with Belinda Veraskati. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. This is indeed Countrywide. My name's David Barnock-Clement. You just heard about the wool market, but of course sheep don't just produce wool. The global market for halal-certified products is set to nearly double by 2030, and Australian exporters are in prime position to profit after recent international trade negotiations. Exporters are set to gain greater access to Malaysia's rapidly growing food sector, which currently imports more than $190 million worth of halal-certified Australian sheep meat per year, 71% of all sheep meat in the country. Jane McNaughton reports. 
The new export opportunities are due to a new Memorandum of Understanding signed by the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, otherwise known as Austrade, and Malaysia's Halal Development Corporation. Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to Malaysia and Brunei, Paul Sandra, says in 2020, Australian exports of goods and services to Malaysia totaled approximately $10 billion. And with rising disposable incomes and a desire for high-quality products and services, there are growing opportunities for Australian businesses in Malaysia. Globally, the halal industry is projected to be worth around, and we're talking sort of United States dollars here, about $5 trillion in 2030. So that's up from about $3 trillion currently. It has declined a bit, obviously, due to the pandemic, but it's definitely um, projected to grow, as those figures indicate. So in terms of Malaysia, um, the total industry here is expected to contribute about 8.1% to Malaysia's total GDP and generate about $18 billion in export revenue for Malaysia. Mr Sandra says strengthening ties with the Malaysian market will also open up further export access to regions like Indonesia and the Middle East. Australian products, uh, obviously our beef and sheep meat exports, but also our cereals, juices, a dairy industry, just to name a few of them, are really welcomed in Malaysia. And the supermarkets are full of Australian products. We're seeing really increasing interest from cosmetic and skincare producers, for example, um, supplement manufacturers, um, to look really seriously at halal certification because of the peace of mind it brings um, to Muslim consumers um, in these markets. Head of Sharia at the Islamic Coordinating Council of Victoria, Dr Bakim Hassani, says Australia exported more than $2.36 billion worth of halal meat in 2021. So halal means everything that is lawful, permissible, according to religious scripture. In Islam, in, in our religion, everything in life is either halal, permitted, or is haram, prohibited. Not just in food, but in everything that we do in life. So according to our faith, there are certain things that are considered to be prohibited, such as alcohol or any pork or pork byproducts. And halal food is not just limited to Muslims, but also to, to others as well. Dr. Hassani says most abattoirs in Australia are halal certified, requiring a Muslim supervisor on site. This means permitted meats such as sheep or beef are stunned prior to slaughter. And abattoirs use very sharp knives so the animals don't feel any pain. Just our neighbouring countries, you, you mentioned yourself, Indonesia, more than 260 million Muslims that actually consume only halal. Malaysia as well, 70% of their entire population is Muslim and they only consume halal. Also GSO countries like um, UAE or Saudi Arabia and all Gulf, Gulf countries, they import meat and, and, um, uh, and dairy products uh, from Australia because um, it's not just halal that is important, but also food safety standards. Uh, Australia is one of the top countries in the world that export dairy products and red meat to, to Muslim countries. So Australia is on top with Brazil, Argentina and, and India and those countries. We have 1.8 billion Muslims around the world that they only consume and drink halal. You know, we have uh, 2.6% are Muslims, around 700,000 Muslims that live in Australia. And 
we consume and drink only halal. This new Memorandum of Understanding supports the Australian government's $72.7 million agribusiness expansion initiative to help the agriculture sector reach their ambition of being worth $100 billion by 2030. Jane McNaughton reporting there. And finally today, if you did have some Australian halal lamb, you might also need some olive oil. Australians are one of the biggest consumers of olive oil outside of the Mediterranean. We consume more than two litres per person per year. Yet olive oil is only found in about 65% of homes. Eliza Burlage has this story. Olive trees are one of the world's oldest cultivated trees, dating back to 2000 BC. But in Australia, olive oil as a commodity is one of the nation's youngest commercial industries. The International Olive Council, IOC, not to be confused with the International Olympic Committee, is assessing tenders for a $1.2 million campaign to promote olive oil in Australia. The campaign to be launched in September will promote the different varieties, distinct features and health benefits of olive oil. Australian Olive Oil Association President David Valmorbida says he's been pushing for the initiative for a while. Anything that helps promote the consumption of olive oil helps further the education of consumers, also of government departments and industry with regards to the unique uh, taste and health benefits of olive oil, is going to ultimately help the industry because it's about creating demand, it's about making sure that Australians are consuming a healthy product and olive oil is what we like to say the healthiest everyday fat and or oil that you could use. And uh, in the end, that makes for a better industry and uh, encourages further investment in the industry, both locally and also from international interest. As Australia is not a member of the IOC, it can't dictate the campaign. But Mr Valmorbida says the industry can piggyback off it. So we're kind of a little bit of a a strategic partner, but being an intergovernmental organisation, they have very strict rules around how they run tenders and how they... Uh, uh, assign money to various initiatives and uh, and obviously to ensure that it's independently done and uh, with the highest of ethics across whichever country they're operating in. So from that respect, we, the Australian Olive Oil Association, we have had a number of conversations in the lead up to the publication of the tender, although now it's the really the role of the IOC to receive the, uh, the applications and they will certainly keep us informed about what's happening and there'll be opportunities for our association and also for other members of of the industry in Australia to be aware of what's coming, to perhaps align their own marketing and promotional campaigns with what the IRC is doing, because I think the more voices we can get talking about this campaign and the more we can leverage it for the uh, improvement of the whole market, the better. The campaign will promote all olive oils, including imported ones. Australian Olives Association CEO Michael Southern says he would have liked more focus on local products. You can understand that they're doing that because there's still a lot of olive oil that's imported into Australia. Over recent years, though, the industry has really geared up and we've seen some excellent, in fact, some of the best quality extra virgin olive oil has been produced here in Australia for the world. And so we're really starting to see a lot more of that product becoming available to local consumers. And uh, as a result, the, the fantastic health benefits associated with olive oil are actually tied with extra virgin olive oil. And so we've been promoting why it's important for consumers to know the difference between extra virgin olive oil and ordinary olive oil. And so one of the things I was keen for the International Olive Council to do was to put an emphasis on promoting extra virgin olive oil, particularly as that's the majority of what we produce here in Australia. And it's also what the consumers have become accustomed to and used to. And they're getting fantastic quality and flavour in those products. And look, some of the international imports are quite good as well.
Olive trees were first planted on farms around the Sydney Basin in the 1800s, but a focus on healthier eating drove interest in olive oil in the 90s. In recent years, alternative oils like coconut, grapeseed and rice bran have taken some market share. Mr Southern says the industry has made great progress in three decades. We've gone from really nothing two decades ago to, to now producing enough olive oil to pretty much supply more than half of the, the demand in Australia. So last year um, we saw a record production year and certainly saw up around 20 million litres of extra virgin olive oil produced, uh, which is a fantastic result for an industry which is very, very young and it's going on from strength to strength. So, so a really great outcome for the industry. While the majority of Australia's olive crop is grown in Victoria, in South Australia, the number of olive growers is just shy of 200. Nick Whiting is Executive Director of South Australian-based Pendleton Olive Oil. He says the campaign is a good opportunity for people to learn more about different varieties. Look, it's really just about people choosing the product that suits them and ensuring they're getting the value for what they're actually looking for. There has been a lot of misconception around olive oil in the past and look, it's good to see that the the imported oil is doing a campaign because the quality that's coming into Australia has increased as Australia has, has become more competitive by producing our own high quality oil. So it's really making sure that people get are getting what they pay for. Pendleton Olive Oil Executive Director Nick Whiting. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. You can listen back to the stories you've heard today via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for your company. I'll see you next week. This is an ABC podcast.